If you would, go ahead and grab your Bible, open to the prophet Isaiah, and if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be a black hardback around there, and uh, that's on page 530 of that Bible. And today we're in Isaiah 2, as we are uh, working our way through the, this prophet, this uh, major prophet. And um, last week in our study, we, we opened with the problem the problem that Isaiah opened with, and that was the problem of Judah, the problem of Jerusalem. The week before that, we had an introduction, uh, kind of getting some groundwork laid for us as we step into this lengthy book. And last week, we saw that the people had forsaken the Lord. And what does that mean, to forsake the Lord? It means to treat Him as though He is the last resort in your life. And this is what the people of Judah were doing. And we heard from chapter 1 that God had not changed. He was the same. He had not been silent about their current sin or previous sins. He, he had not been silent. And there was also what we saw in chapter 1, a, a promise, a promise of radical change that, that God would bring about in these people that had forsaken Him, had despised Him. And this is going to happen through repentance of sin. Today, we're going to turn our attention to the second chapter as we as we look now into really two poems that make up chapter 2, <clears throat> there are obvious, I think, contrasts that are being made here of these two poems that are here. In the first four or five verses that are here, it is one poem that paints the picture of a future hope, a future ideal picture of what God's people will be. And then the second poem makes up this idea or paints this picture of really the current reality of Judah, God's people, the people that claim the name of the Lord. There, there's a, a reality that is not the ideal. So let's just jump right in here to the first five verses of this chapter to see the first of these two poems of Isaiah 2. Look at verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the, of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation should not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord." Verse 1 is a verse that gives us some context of who Isaiah is giving this, this vision to, this word to, this poem to initially. They are the first audience that's hearing this, and that is Judah and Jerusalem. And so what we need to do is, is think of it in that realm of how is this going to uh, uh, hit them, first of all, because we are a secondary or tertiary audience and so we, we should not just read our 21st century perspectives into this, but really, really understand what did this mean to these people initially. So this poem that we have here, verses 2 through 4, it is a poem that Isaiah records 
But there's another prophet that records the exact same poem, and that's Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, is almost a word-for-word copy of these two poems. Now, scholars would debate over why or how these got there, but I, I think they act as confirmations between one and the other, confirming one prophet to the other prophet. Now, this poem, what it is, it is dealing with the ideal Jerusalem. This poem is describing really what the future will be for Jerusalem, but it also includes not just the the, the future for them, but also the future for other nations. This poem should be treated as a poem, but also it should be treated as a promise, because there's a great promise made here. The things that are described here will be completed. They will come to a fruitation. They, They will come to a completion. Why? Because God has promised something. These are not just poetic words that have been put down by, by a prophet thousands of years ago, but, but these are the words of God and the promises of God. If you look at verse 2, it starts with, it shall come to pass in the latter days. What are the latter days? Now, let me spell that for you. That's L-A-T-T-E-R, not L-A-D-D-E-R. Latter days, like a ladder, that'd be like Home Depot, Lowe's, like that's what they do. This is not what Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about the latter days, the last days. So the question is, what are the latter days? What are the last days? The Bible tells us that we are now in the last days. And we have been in the last days since Jesus Christ came in his first appearance to the earth. The New Testament authors like John and Paul, they they believe themselves to be in the last days. And we should have the same sense. We should have the same same thought patterns as those New Testament authors did, thinking ourselves to be in the latter days. So with that, is this how you live your life? Is this how you go about your life? Do you live as though you are in the last days? Do you live as though these are the latter days, as in today being one of those last days? Is this how we as a church live our lives? Do we treat this time together as just merely religious games that we're playing, or do we we really act and live as though this is, in fact, one of the last days? It seems as though there there is a lot of game playing that goes on. It seems to me there is a lot of of games that people do play where where people do mess around with religion and, and play games with religion, and they're not really serious about dealing with sinful behaviors, whether in their life or maybe in somebody else's life, not really taking seriously the Word of God, not really taking seriously their commitment to the local church, which is made up of God's people, not really taking seriously the fact that people are dying daily and going to hell. So let me ask you the question again. Are you, are we, playing games. If we are in the latter days, then maybe we should start living like it. Maybe we should start thinking like it, if this is true. These final days will involve something miraculous and glorious, though, as we see here in this, in this text. There's something amazing that's taking place. It's not just doom and gloom that, that Isaiah is talking about, but there's something miraculous that's taking place. He says, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be the highest mountain, which means what? Like, if you've been to the Rockies, you're like, oh, I love mountains. This is a great passage. Well, 
This is a reference that seems to be pointing to Jerusalem. It seems to be because this is who it was written to. But that may not necessarily be the case. Even though Jerusalem did contain the temple, the, the house of the Lord, but there seems to be something else here. Remember that this is figurative language because this is a poem. That's what poems contain, correct? Roses are red, violets are blue, and the rest of that. I don't know how that goes. Remember that this figurative language is presenting something to us in a way that we could visualize and understand and then grab a hold of a deeper spiritual truth. And so these mountains, these mountains that are mentioned here, this is a culturally relevant idea because mountains were thought to be places where pagan gods would reside. That, well, that mountain over there, that's the god of this, and that mountain over there is the god of that. And this is how people thought in this culture, in this time. And here, Isaiah is saying that there will be no comparison with this mountain versus any other mountain because this will be the highest. There will be no other mountain that compares to it because it is the home of the one and only God who sits atop of it. Not literally, but figuratively. It seems like this is a reference to the Temple Mount of Jerusalem, but but we also know that this is not exactly what God is telling his people here. This is not a literal temple, a literal house that Isaiah is mentioning. Why? Because what did Jesus say? Jesus referred to himself as the temple of God. If you look at John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Referring to his body, his self. Destroy this temple, destroy my body, and in three days I'll raise it up. If we jump towards the end of our Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter records these words in 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then Jesus also says in John chapter 4, as he's having this conversation with the woman at the well, maybe you're familiar with that, he tells her that there's coming a day, there's coming a day when people will not go to a certain mountain or to Jerusalem or to any other place to worship the Lord. The true worshipers of God will worship him how? In spirit and in truth. That it will not be based around a location or a building, but around a person. It is the person, Jesus Christ. So we know, because of the New Testament, that this mountain or house is not a literal house or temple or mountain. It's not Jerusalem. No, this is, this is not. What the full picture is, the full picture is the Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what Isaiah is prophesying. This is what Isaiah is pointing us toward. And so there in verse 2, it says that all the nations will flow to it. Notice that. This would make the Jewish people, I think, a little uncomfortable because what do you mean other nations? What, what do you mean other nations? I thought we were the people of God. Well, this falls right in line with the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, when God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And so this shouldn't be a surprise to them. This shouldn't be a surprise to us either. In this verse, it is poetically expressing the Abrahamic covenant and the status of Israel being the elect people of God. 
who were chosen as a means by which all nations shall be blessed by way of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. This, this is what's represented here in these people. In all the nations flowing. Now notice that word flow that's used here. This is a picture of the people of all these nations flowing like a river toward this mountain. Now what we also need to take special note of here is that this is a supernatural uphill flow. They're flowing uphill to this mountain. Now what does water do with gravity? Runs downhill, not uphill. So what's being presented to us here is something supernatural taking place with all of these nations. They're moving upward, upward to the Savior. Something supernatural is taking place in these people, these nations. They're moving, flowing to this mountain. What's being described for us is is a spiritual movement of people, not necessarily a physical movement of people, but a spiritual movement. This does not mean that a bunch of people are going to move to Jerusalem, you know, overwhelm the city, and oh look, all the people of God have showed up, and all these nations are there. This is not what is being presented to us, nor does it mean that there's now going to be another requirement of people making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. That's not what's included here. The, the Jews were already required to go to Jerusalem three times a year. We see this in other religions too, where pilgrimage are, are requirements. And in the Muslim world, the, uh, the trip to Mecca is required once in their lifetime. But what does Christianity require? What does Christianity demand? We, we have that here in this verse. There should be a streaming, a flowing, a going to Jesus Christ. Not to a place, not to a building, but in the supernatural act of regeneration to Jesus Christ. This is what needs to happen. This is what's demanded. <clears throat> Jesus is the temple. He is the house. He is the house that we must go to in order to worship the one true God. Jesus says in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These rivers that are flowing, they, they are not, they're not flowing from other sources or to other sources. They are flowing <coughs> in a supernatural way uphill to the only source of life, the only way, the only truth, the only way that somebody gets to the Father. The only appropriate way for us or anybody to worship God truly, honestly, is through the Son. If you look at verse 3, Isaiah goes on. It says, And many people shall come and say, <clears throat> Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So verse 3 tells us that Many people will, will do something and say something. And what is it? They will come, and they will also say, come. I think what we have here is a picture for us, again, a poetic picture of people laying aside their nationalism in order for them to focus upon worshiping the one true God. I was listening to a pastor talk about his church that was located in the UAE, which is the United Arab Emirates. 
And there were churches just filled with international people from all over the world. And their sanctuary had, had just flags that surrounded the room uh, from all these different countries that these people uh, came from or their origins were from, representing really just how international they were as a church. That's not a bad thing. But this pastor, what he began to notice in his people, the longer that he was there, he noticed that they, they were more apt to identify themselves as international than they were as Christian. That, that they were really proud and, and, and happy of the fact that, well, we're really international. And they say, well, I'm from Brazil, or, or I'm from Afghanistan, or, or I'm from America. But look, we're all together. Look how international we are. Look, look, at, look at this. And the focus of their identity was not upon Christ, but it was upon their nationalities. So what did the pastor do? Well, he removed all the flags. That's what he did. And he did this in order to help the people see and understand that they were idolizing something that was off the mark, just, just off, just a little bit from what needed to be seen. They needed to focus on what really does matter, and that is the citizenship of the kingdom of God. That's what they needed to focus their minds on, not on an earthly nationality. And this is what verse 3 is getting at, this idea that all the people from all over are coming collectively as one. Why? Because of one. It's because of the citizenship in which they all now have. In verse 3, we see this laying aside of nationalism, laying aside of civil pride in order to come together to worship the one true God. They come together for this purpose. They come together and say the same thing. They're not saying different things. They say the same thing. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Now that is partially fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we have a partial fulfillment of this where we have all these people that have actually poured into Jerusalem, they hear Peter preach. And Peter then calls the people to repentance. And what do we see? Over 3,000 people come to know faith in Jesus Christ from all over the globe in that moment. There's a laying aside of their nationality, their language, their position, their popularity. Why? To worship one Savior. Verse 3 tells us that believers... They know what the truth is, and then they call others to that truth. This is what this means. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. This is the call of the redeemed. This is the call of the Christian, is to call others into that. What this means is that the truly saved, the truly redeemed people of God will have a desire to learn and to walk in the ways of the Lord. And if you don't really learn his ways, then of course you're not really going to walk in his ways. You've got to know what they are before you can do what they are. And and if you really don't desire to know what they are, then do you really desire to know him? I believe that would be a fairly clear description of what forsaking the Lord is, of wanting to do your own way and not God's way, preferring to do what you think is right instead of what God says is right. And if you're not walking in obedience to the Lord, then then I would say that you've forsaken him. You've despised him. Look at the last verse of of this first poem, verse 4. Isaiah says, He shall judge between the nations and shall 
uh, decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The Lord is going to settle disputes. He is going to bring peace. And what, what is the examples that we have here? We see that these people that were once at odds with each other, these once maybe different nations, different nationalities, different maybe civil pride that they have going on, that all of this is now brought together under this one, Jesus Christ. And so what do they do? Because of this peace that's out there, they take their instruments of war and they turn them into harvesting implements, their efforts their desires. It's all changed. There's new desires. There's new wants that are there. Now, in our world, there is definitely a call for the reduction of, of armament, and this is both inside of our country and outside into the world, and this has been going on for, you know, forever. It is <clears throat> thought that if we remove people's tools of war, then and this will achieve world peace, and, and all the Miss America candidates will get what they want. The, these kinds of attempts, they'll all be in vain. They will never accomplish what they desire because they, there is only one way for peace to come across the world. There, there's only one way that peace can come, and that is if everyone would submit themselves to the law of the king of peace. World peace will not be accomplished when there is a a world worldwide sorry let me back up worldwide peace will come when there is a worldwide recognition of nationalism being laid aside and coming under the truth of Jesus the one true god and faith in him it's not removing instruments of war or it's not feeding everybody that is on the planet these things will not cannot bring peace they might bring a foreshadowing of that peace, but they will not bring peace. It is only faith in the one true God that will do this. And, and Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How does peace come to us personally? It is through Jesus Christ. Our peace is in Him, and our world needs peace and they only find peace in Jesus Christ. If we do not have Jesus, we do not have peace. They, they go together. There is no other solution. If we desire to see the end of fighting and warring, it starts with the people of God, us, coming to the mountain, flowing uphill to the mountain, and calling others, like verses 2 and 3 is saying, calling others to come with us. Come Come to this mountain of God. Come to this one that brings salvation. Come to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the King of Kings. And when there is adherence to the King of Kings' perfect plan of peace, there will be peace. Why is there such turmoil in the world? Because people love to live by their own standard. Right? We, we love our own ideas. We love other people's ideas. What we don't love is God's. Every way of the Lord is perfect. Every way of the Lord is right. 
And when Jesus returns at his second coming, there will be a full obedience to his way. It will happen. And so why did Jesus say at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 20, he said, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you because he is the king of peace and in following his way brings about peace. It leads us to peace with each other. Maybe you've heard of this missionary, Adoniram. His first name is weird, right? I don't know. Why can't it be like Todd? Um, Judson, maybe you've heard of him. Adoniram Judson. Uh, he is considered to be kind of the father of at least American Baptist missionary work. He lived from 1788 to 1850. And one author writes this about Judson with these words. He says, when Adoniram Judson entered Burma in July 18, uh, 1813, it was a hostile, utterly unreached place. William Carey, uh, another famous missionary, had told Judson in India a few months earlier not to go there. Today, it would probably have been considered a closed country with anarchic disposition, fierce, uh, fierce war with Siam, enemy raids, constant rebellion, and no religious toleration. All the previous missionaries had died or left. Judson's life was a grain of wheat that fell into the soil of Myanmar and died again and again and again. The suffering was immense, and so was the fruit. At the turn of the second to the third millennium, Patrick Johnstone estimated that uh, Myanmar, Burma's new name, uh, their Baptist convention to be 3,700 congregations with 617,781 members and 1.9 affiliates, the fruit of this dead seed. Why did Judson decide to go to a country that was, was hostile to Christianity and created so much suffering? And, I, and if you read his story, a tremendous amount of suffering for himself and his family. Why? Why would he do this? Because he believed something about the Word of God. He believed it to be true. He believed Isaiah 2-4 to be true. He believed that God would do what he promised to do. When God promised to bring peace to a people that did not know peace. He trusted the way of the Lord. The way that will bring peace to the most restless and most warring and, and evil and hateful people he trusted in the supernatural, regenerative work of God. This is why he went. So let me ask you, do you find yourself always quarreling or fighting? Do you find yourself always in the midst of drama? And I don't mean a TV show, but your life could be one. Why do you think that is? What do you think the origins of that is? Now, maybe you'd be tempted to think, well, if, it was, if that person wasn't in my life, then it wouldn't be. Or if these people weren't in my life. Maybe you've thought about this question before. Maybe you've thought, why is this happening? The King Jesus, he is a peacemaker. And what does he do? He makes peace. His ways bring 
peace, even the most hostile of countries, like Judson was experiencing, or even to the most hostile of homes. So the question becomes, are you walking in his paths like verse 3 says? This is the call of the Christian, calling people to walk into the paths of the Lord, walk in his ways. Will walking in his paths completely remove all of your suffering, all of your quarrels, all of your drama, all of your pain? Of course not. Judson was, is an example of this. But what you will start to see, just like Judson started to see, was peace sweep across your home, sweep across a nation. Why? Because Jesus brings peace. This pioneering missionary, what he saw, what he saw happen in his own lifetime, which he almost didn't, he he saw this take place, is that the peace of God began to happen, and people began to flow to this mountain that had never even thought about flowing to the mountain of God. And why did they come? Because he called. And then others started to call. What is the result? Millions of people coming to know Jesus Christ. That's the first poem. If you look at verse 5, it says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This verse, is, it's kind of a response to those, those first four verses. Isaiah calls to the nation uh, what the, the first poem says that God's people will do, and that is calling them to come. Come, walk in, in the light of the Lord. Notice the word that's used here in verse 5, though, he says, let us walk. Us. Again, he's not pointing fingers at other people. He's saying us, us collectively. It's all of us here. This is what we should be doing. He included himself. He included himself in this call to the people to the ideal, a call of repentance to the ideal, to walk in the Lord's light. And this light that he is calling them into is it's already present. This is not something that has just shown up or has just now been uncovered. No, the light of the Lord has always been present. But what have the people been doing? Chapter 1, they've been forsaking the Lord. They've been despising the Lord. They've been walking in darkness. So what he is saying here to the people, call him to the ideal, is come to what has already been here. As we, as we saw last week, that God has spoken. He has been clear. He has not been silent. This has been true since the very beginning. This light that he is calling them into, it, it's, it's present. Step into that light. This reminds me, again, what we read already this morning, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him, proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice in Isaiah 2 5 and also 1 John. It does not say, walk to the light, right? That's usually what they tell you on your deathbed not to do, right? Don't go towards the light. As a Christian, you should want to go to the light. Um, Notice, it doesn't say walk to it, but walk in it. It, It's present. It's here. it's, It's now. 
So making progress in holiness is by walking in the light that is already here. What do you already know? What light has God already given you? What truth has he already uncovered and discovered for you? This is not some new light source that you have to go and find. This is why John writes his gospel and these other three books there, dealing with the Gnostic idea of, well, we're all parts of the light and we have to get back to the light like you know, transformers do. It, that's not it. First service didn't get that reference either, so that's fine. No, it is not uncovering something. It's something that's already here. It's been here. God has been consistent. He has not been silent. And what have the people chosen to do? They've chosen to remain in darkness and not have the truth. And Jesus simply said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You keep them. You'll walk in them. And if you have no desire to keep his commandments or to walk in the light, then I would have to question, really, your desire for Jesus at all. If you don't really want to do what he wants, then do you really want him? The first four verses, again, it speaks of the ideal Jerusalem, the ideal uh, people of God. But now, let's turn our attention to verse 6. And really, 6 through even chapter 4, verse 1, we see a telling of the actual Jerusalem, so we have a picture of the ideal Jerusalem, what it's going to be, how this is all going to play out, the hope that is there, but then the rest of this chapter deals with the disorder that is in Jerusalem. Look at 6 through 9 with me. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures, their land is filled with horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. In verses 6 through 9, Isaiah gives us five contrasts here between the first poem and now the start of the second one. The first thing we see is from verse 6. We see that Judah and Jerusalem... They had not come closer to God, but what had they been getting closer to? Looking just like their foreign neighbors, their pagan, worldly neighbors. Second contrast is instead of seeking spiritual benefits, they were striving for material benefits, material wealth. Then another thing out of verse 7 is that in the ideal, when there was a, a coming to Zion, there was peace. God brought peace. But in verse 7, we see that they are building an arsenal. They're, they're building instruments of war. There is no peace. The fourth thing is the ideal is, is to know the true God and to commit to obey Him. But then in verse 8, what do we see? We see that they are busy inventing their own gods. N notice how it words that there too. What their own fingers have made. Hmm. The work of their hands, the work of their fingers, and they think that has some sort of divine power to prevent, prevent destruction. A fifth thing, 
Fifth contrast we see here is in the ideal Jerusalem, there's a, there's a peace that God brings to the people and among the people, but Isaiah says from verse 6 all the way through verse 9 that they are going to be abandoned and they will not be forgiven. Verse 9 is not Isaiah commanding God to not forgive the people. He is just stating the fact that there will not be forgiveness for them. What is the source of these things? What is the source of this happening? Go back to chapter 1. Think of chapter 1. They have forsaken the Lord. They're despising God. They've become puffed up in pride. They pride themselves in a lot of different things, and we see that here. They pride themselves in the tolerance of practicing other religions. They pride themselves in their, their financial reserves, their military protections. They also pride themselves in just really how spiritual they are because look at all the idols that are in the nation. These things that they are priding themselves in are the reasons why God will strike them down. And as verse 9 says, so man is humbled and each one is brought low. What does that mean? God will not tolerate this kind of behavior. And what will he do to the prideful? He will tear them down. God hates the proud, and he will humble those who are proud. Look at the next verses, 10 through 21. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and lofty pride of, man, of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter into caves and rocks uh, of the rocks and the holes of the ground for before, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rock and the clefts of the cliffs for, uh, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Isaiah ends this poem with two sections here. We see this in 10 through 17, then 18 through 21. And both of these sections really get to the point of what the proud can expect from God. What can the proud expect from Him? Terror is the word. Terror. They should run, they should hide, they, they should try to get out of his presence as quickly as possible because he's coming to crush everything that they have taken refuge in, everything that they have taken pride in. God is coming to crush it. Verse 10, notice how Isaiah says that they should hide from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The splendor of his majesty. That's repeated, as you, maybe you saw, verse 19, also verse 21. So three times here in this poem, this is repeated 
You know, usually whenever we, we talk about the splendor of God's majesty, it's not usually in the judgment sense, at least how I think about it. It's usually like, oh, how, how glorious God is, and it's very positive in how we apply it. But here, Isaiah uses it in a, a pretty negative way, a, a way of judgment. So what's going to be so terrifying about the Lord's splendor and about His majesty? What's so terrifying about that? Isn't that a great thing? It's terrifying when there's a realization of evil men standing before an eternally perfect holy God. That's terrifying. Let me ask you this question. Is pride evil? You can respond to that, okay? Yes, right? I set you up. You just had to hit it, okay? Yes, it's evil. Let me ask you another one. You don't have to answer out loud. Do you consider your pride evil? The, the pride that you have in your life, the pride that you've been operating on this past week, do you consider that evil? Or do you say, well, it's a struggle? You know, I have difficulties. And we relabel sin as something else so that we are more comfortable with it instead of what it really is. We don't usually call our pride pride. We, we call it something else. We dismiss it as something else. And I think whatever we do that, we are deceiving ourselves, and we're probably not deceiving anybody else, but you are not deceiving God. God adamantly hates pride. And I think just from the end of this chapter, we, we see how much he does hate pride. How, how angry he is against those that are proud. And also what God is going to do, he is going to humble them. He's going to humble them, and maybe he's going to humble you now or in eternity. All the things that, that this world can offer, like verses 13 through 16 is, is describing all these mighty things, all these great things. They will not protect, they will not secure anyone from a God who is coming against the proud and the lofty. They can do nothing to stop him. It is the Lord alone who should be exalted. It is the Lord alone that should be worshipped. What will last when the Lord shows up? Look at verse 18. What's the answer? What will last? Well, it's not idols. Idols will pass away. They won't last. All these things, 13 through 16, all that's gone. There's nothing that can stand before a holy and righteous God. All those things that one has, has thought to be the saving grace for them has zero ability and power to do anything against the Lord. And in verse 20, what do we see? People will abandon their stuff. They will throw away their idols made of silver, made of gold. Why? To escape the presence of God. The splendor and the majesty of a holy God will show up. And what will people do? Abandon everything to get away from him. Let me ask you this question. What is the standard that we should use to judge everything? And what I mean by everything is everything. As in your job, your relationships, your children's successes, your bank account, your talents, your body, your intellect, your stuff. So everything. What is the standard that we should use to judge all of these things? 
I think here's the answer. How will these things fare on the day of the Lord? How will these things fare when a holy, righteous God appears? What will happen to these things? Are these things that I'm just going to chuck and run? Or do they have lasting, eternal benefit? Look back at verse 12. It says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. What does this mean? It means the omnipotent God is coming against all that is proud. He has, he has set a day on his calendar of events to come and to judge the proud. It is an unavoidable day that is coming. Now, the proud would like to deny and, and say that they would ever be on such a list or on, on such a day that God would arrive and destroy them. And I think this just further proves the cancerous tumor of pride that is growing in them. Saying, no, oh, surely not me. Surely that wouldn't be the case for me. And this, was, this is what the people of Judah were doing. The people of Jerusalem saying, oh, no, we're, we're some of the, the holiest people in the world. We have the temple of God here. They were proud, arrogant, and God is saying he's going to bring judgment. God alone has determined a specific day that he will judge man. Our days, the days that we have, this day right here, it's not just simply ticking past us as if it is not ordained by the Creator. Every day that has been given to you is just that. Is it not a gift? Have you not been gifted this day? So the question becomes, if each day has been divinely planned and sent by God, what are you going to do with it? Are you, are you going to forsake the Lord with those days? Saying, yeah, I'm going to do my own thing, and then whenever I get in real trouble, I'm going to call out to God. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of live my own life, do my own thing. I don't really need to be part of, you know, the... Those, those people that I don't really get along with, you know, the church, and, and I'm going to kind of avoid the Bible. I'm not really going to pray, but I'm definitely going to call myself a Christian. And then when something really bad happens, what do you do? You run to God, you cry out to God, you treat Him as the last resort. You have forsaken Him. Is this how you're going to live your days? Or the other option is that you're going to forsake your sin. You're going to forsake the lifestyle that treats God as though he is last place, and you're going to treat him as the most preeminent thing in your life. That you're going to humble yourself in obedience to the Lord's will. This second poem is pushing to this question, what are you going to do with your days? What are you going to do? Are you going to remain in your pride, or are you going to come and repent and trust in the Lord are you going to humble yourself before the Lord? I stopped short of verse 22, but I want us to turn our attention there now. The last verse of this chapter, Isaiah writes, Stop regarding man, in whose nostril is breath, for of what account is he? Maybe your translation puts this maybe a little bit clearer for you, and it just says, Stop trusting man instead of stop regarding man. So why should you stop trusting people? Well, the answer is right there, because what is man? He is merely a creature. 
like a deer in your headlights or like a sheep without a shepherd. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They have no solutions, and they make the worst decision. If you've ever hit a deer, you know what I'm talking about. What Isaiah is getting at with the people of Jerusalem, with the people of Judah, he is saying, you have trusted in anything and everything and everyone other than God. Everyone except the Lord you have trusted. Stop trusting them and trust Him. Isaiah gives his readers and even now us, I think, two clear application verses here. If you go back to verse 5 and then verse 22, these two verses I think we need to pay special attention to. In verse 5, again, it, it tells us to walk in the light that is here. Be obedient to what you already know. You know what is good. You know what is right. Do that. James 4.17 tells, tells us the same kind of thing. To him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, it is sin. So if you know what's right, you've been instructed, whether through preaching, through the reading of the word, through, through prayer, you have discovered what the truth is. His light, not your own, not some foreign, new kind of light, but God's light that has been given to you. If you know what it is and you keep avoiding doing what is right, that is sinful. So is there something that you know you should be doing, but you keep avoiding it? It's something that, you know, every time you, you pray, it, it just pops into your mind. Or maybe it's every sermon you hear and you're like, gosh, that guy keeps preaching at me. I'm not. I don't even know what's going on in your life most of the time. I'm not even on Facebook. Anyway, um, you can learn a lot about a person on Facebook. Uh, yeah, uh, moving on. Um, so are you avoiding doing what's right? Are you avoiding doing what you know the Word of God tells you to do? It may, maybe it's something as simple as Matthew 5 says, if you've got something against your brother, go and make it right that day. Leave your sacrifice. Go. Make it right. Maybe it's something like that. And you've been avoiding it because, well, it's difficult, it's uncomfortable, it's risky, I might hurt somebody's feelings, or, or many, many other excuses that we give. And what verse 5 is saying is, walk in the light. Come to the light. It's there. This is the truth. Let's do it. And by avoiding doing the right thing, it is not loving others and it is not loving the Lord. And what it is, is despising others and despising the Lord. And the call is, walk in the ways of the Lord, not your own. And this brings us right to verse 22. Verse 22. It connects very easily to verse 5. As verse 5 calls us to walk in the light, if we are walking in the light of the Lord, then we will not be trusting in the created thing, but in the creator. Why do we suffer so much turmoil and conflict with, with others? Well, mostly because of our pride. Mostly because we, we love to listen to everyone else, everything else, other than God's way of doing things. And verse 22 is saying, stop trusting in people's advice and opinions, and the most untrustworthy person you have always been listening to has been yourself. 
stop trusting in your own estimations and opinions and do what? Trust in the Lord's way. These are the simple applications that we have. This is not a formula. This is not a formula. These are not silver bullets for you. Be like, yeah, pastor gave me that these seven points and I'm going to do that thing this week. All this simply says is trust God. Walk in his way. It, it's not complicated, but it's difficult, isn't it? Because we're at war with ourselves. And this is why we need something supernatural to work in us, to draw us and bring us to the mountain. Let me leave you with these three kind of thoughts and questions as we spend some time in reflection this morning, as we normally do. Let me give you these three questions. Has pride been the source of your disobedience and neglect of God's standard? Has your pride been the reason why you have just been disobedient? That you've been neglecting what God has called you to do? Second thing, where do your footsteps typically land? Are they in the light or are they in darkness? Another kind of follow-up to that is, how do you know if they're in the light? How do you know if they're in darkness? Again, is, is this your own prideful, selfish heart deceiving you, or do you really know what the light is? And the last thing I want you to think on is, really, the, this first four verses in this first two and three there, as it talks about inviting people to the mountain, calling people to the mountain, let me ask you, who do you need to invite to Jesus? Maybe God has, has put people in your life and, and you have been trying. You've been calling and you feel like Judson where you have been in a land that everybody is hostile to you, that nobody will listen. And it took Judson, I think, about eight years to see his first convert. Eight years. And so maybe you've been in your job for eight days and you have that one person you just can't get along with and they hate Jesus and they hate you. It's eight days, okay? Be patient. Call upon the Lord. Call them to come and come to the mountain that will save, the mountain that brings peace. Would you spend some time in just, just reflection and in prayer, and then I'll pray for us and we'll sing one final song.